Ephesians chapter 4 through to uh, 5 verse uh, 21 or so is what we're aiming for tonight. Let's ask God again to help us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for Paul the Apostle for his suffering for us as our Apostle, as the Apostle to the Gentiles. Thank you for his prayer for us Gentiles, that we should be those who would so know your love for us, the breadth, the height, the depth, that in knowing your love for us, we might indeed be people who are able to know you and to glorify you and to be that church which one day will be in splendor and glory. We pray, Father, for ourselves, for BTPC, that as we journey to that final goal, please, Father, help us to be those who walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you have called us to. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what is your calling? Even the secular business now talk a lot about calling. In a job interview, they may ask you, what is your passion in life? What is your calling? What is your purpose? Why are you doing this? You're meant to say that you're not just doing it for the money, of course. You're not even doing it for an app dance in Korea. You're meant to do it for the sake of the greater good, for Singapore, for the world. A dedication, a purpose beyond yourself. Something bigger than me. Christians, of course, for a long time have had this idea of calling. And so people talk about a vocation. Uh, God's calling for us. Often people talk about in terms of God calling me to a certain profession. Uh, called me to be an engineer, a doctor, an accountant. People want a calling because then they can be sure that God has his stamp of approval on what we're going to do. There is guidance, there is assurance. And if it's a supernatural kind of calling, that's even better. Then you really know. I was in my bedroom one day, in back in my parents' house when I was a bit younger, and I heard this uh, voice say, Joshua! So I went across to my parents and said, did you call me? And they said, no, 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 we didn't call you, go back to bed. Went back to bed and then, Joshua! So I went to my sister's room, did you call me? And she said, no, I didn't call you. And by this stage I was about to go back to bed and say, yes, Lord, I'm listening, you know. <laughs> and I looked out the window and I just realised a new family had moved in with a little kid called Joshua. <laughs> What is God's calling for your life? Today I'm going to leave you with no doubt at the end of this uh, half hour, hour or so, no doubt of what is God's calling for your life. For here in chapter 4, it speaks about our calling, especially chapter 4, verse 1 to 6. Very famous uh, few verses. But did you notice that here there's about four times this idea of calling comes up? Chapter 4, verse 1, I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, that's twice, 
And then, uh, down in verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your core. Right? Four times it talks about our calling. And he's addressing all Christians. Here's the passage about God's calling for us. By God. What is it? It is a calling that is based on what we've done so far in chapters 1 to 3. You see the very important word, therefore. Whenever the word therefore is there, you've got to ask, what is it? Therefore. That is on the basis of what God has done in Jesus, chapter 1, putting Jesus as the head of all creation, chapter 2, saving us and bringing Jew and Gentile together. Because of that, therefore, we are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. Walk worthily, walk appropriately. Uh, if you've been called to uh, play rugby for Singapore, then you don't go and practice your ping pong. You even may drop your studies, perhaps, because it's so important to play rugby for Singapore. You learn to catch the ball. You don't kick a soccer ball. You go for one of those egg kind of balls. You, you do everything in your training. We have been called to something, live appropriately, fittingly, towards that calling. Now, what is the calling we've been called to? What is the, the hope, the future? Well, you see it there in verse 4. It is a hope. It is a future. Just as, verse 4, you were called to what? To the one hope that belongs to your call. We've seen this idea of hope before, haven't we? Remember, go back to chapter 1, chapter 1, and verse 18. Chapter 1, verse 18. Flip back there. Come on, flip back. Hear the rustle paper or your slide of the uh, iPad. Chapter 1, verse 18. Uh, Paul prays that our eyes may be enlightened, our hearts may be opened, that we may know what is the hope, there's the word again, to which he has called you. There's the word of calling again. God has called us to a hope. Hope in the Bible, hope in the New Testament, is different from uh, our modern usage of hope. Our modern usage of hope is, I hope for something, uh, you're not sure about it. In the Bible, hope is sure. Yes, it's in the future, but it's a certain future. We've been called to this certain future, and what is it? Verse 18, chapter 1, that is, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? There is our future. We can have a bright, splendorous, glorious inheritance. The inheritance that belong to God's own people, uh, the Jews in the Old Testament, uh, the, the Jewish Christians in the New Testament, that is now ours as Asians as well. We have a riches that we are looking forward to. What is this hope? What is this inheritance? We've seen it in chapter 1 and verse 13, 14. It is inheritance of heaven. It is inheritance where we will actually be God's inheritance, remember, that we will be God's own possession, that we belong to him. And the big thrust of Ephesians so far is we as Gentiles get it as well. 
Most of the time these days, uh, in Christian circles, uh, this Jew-Gentile thing is not a big deal, you know? I mean, most Christians are, are Gentiles now. You really, really uh, see any Jewish Christians. Uh, so the fact that the Jews sort of uh, were the first to get this inheritance, that's, you know, we've forgotten about it. We've actually forgotten how, how great a privilege that we get included in heaven. We get included in their salvation, in their inheritance. We almost, oh, we, we just, we don't care too much about it. We, we forget about what privilege we have in having that inheritance. I was given an inheritance, um, about, I don't know, 15 years ago. An auntie of my wife, uh, who was from Europe, gave us an old Persian rug. Uh, she was a fairly well-to-do lady, and uh, she didn't need this Persian rug, so she gave it to us. I didn't like this Persian rug. It was old. It's in a yucky design. And so I put it in the garage at home. And I still didn't like it in the garage. Except I'm in the garage, I got all hay feverish and all the dust on the carpet and I sniffed and everything. And so in there I talked to my wife. I said, Look, I'm going to get rid of this thing. So I rolled it out, and in, in Australia every now and then there's throw out, right, where you throw out all your stuff and you just anyone can pick it off the street. So I threw it out, and then, funny enough, the next day someone had picked it up. I said, oh, great, good, get rid of it. And then a year or two later, I got this little um, brochure in the in my mailbox as advertising second-hand Persian carpets. I thought, oh, that's interesting, I wonder how much they're worth. And I was thinking, that auntie of mine, she was very rich, and so her one was probably worth more than that. I had this great treasure, great inheritance, and I did not even realize I had it. I just threw it out. What? $15,000 for a Persian rug? What does it do? Fly or something, you know? I could not care about it. And sometimes, friends, that is how we treat heaven and the inheritance that we have. We get so used to it, we don't even realize its value, and we just don't think about it. We toss it out. But, friends, that is the future hope we have, to have the inheritance of heaven, to have God in heaven, to have God to own us as his people in heaven. Us, even the Gentiles, the sinners. Well then, that is what we've been called to. That is where we're going. And so, back to chapter 4, chapter 4, verse 4 to 6 then, highlights uh, this one thing we all have. He expresses this one thing in, in seven things, uh, seven being the complete number. And so in chapter 4, uh, verse uh, 4 through to 6, there's seven one things which all Christians share in, the unity we have. One body, that is um, the church, one spirit, the Holy Spirit. We're called to this one hope, right? So we've got this one certain future, this great inheritance. Verse 5, one Lord, the Lord Jesus, one faith, our trust in him, one baptism, we we, uh, show our repentance in baptism, one God and Father of all, seven, he's the unity, he's the basis of what unites all Christians. This unity we have already, including our future inheritance and hope. 
We do not work for it. It's been given to us. God has called us to this one unity, this one hope. What we need to do is to maintain it. You see there in verse 3, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He's the great command here in these four or six verses. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling you've been called. And how do you walk in a manner that's worthy of this calling? By verse 3, by seeking to maintain the unity we have as Christians. How do you maintain that unity? Well, verse 2 tells us how to do it. We're to be people who are humble, gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love. They're the things that make for unity. Friends, we do not create our unity as Christians by having a, um, a social, by having dinner together, by even having a church camp. We cannot create this unity. The unity is created by Jesus and what he's done for us on the cross. But we are therefore to maintain this unity. We maintain the unity in the way we relate to one another. In all churches, because churches are not perfect, there are disagreements, there are fights, there's politics. Because wherever you have people, there is politics. Whenever two or three are gathered in my name, Jesus says, there's politics. (laughs) Now, we shouldn't. We are meant to be one together in Christ, but as we are sinful people, we sometimes actually sin against each other. Sometimes we don't sin against each other. We were seeking to do the right thing, but we just try to do it in different ways or we misunderstand each other. We may have the same goal, but different ways of getting to it. And, and some of us think that you know, our way is, of course, the best way. And, and so disagreements appear, as in any family, so also in the family of God. I remember once many years ago, um, a couple at our church and myself and my wife, we had this disagreement and, you know, there's a bit of accusations uh, that they made against us. And you know, But I was reminded that it's Satan who wants to drive us apart. And so we ended up writing a letter to this couple and saying, look, sorry you know, if we've caused you sadness and things like that. And, and we quoted these verses. So we need to actually be aiming at maintaining the unity that Jesus has given us. It takes humility, doesn't it, to admit that, hey, we might not have done it in the best way. It takes gentleness. It takes patience. The word patience, the idea of forbearance, of long-suffering. A church pill can give you suffering, do you know that? And bearing with one another in love. As Asian people, we don't like conflict. Uh, We try to avoid any appearance of conflict. Uh, We try to sort of sweep it under the carpet. Uh, And the last thing often we do is um, confront the person which we're having the, the problem with. 
You know, A has a problem with B, and what do they do? They tell C. <laughs> and if A can tell C quicker than B can tell C, then C gets on A's side. And so you have a little, you know, a little team here, and you gather your people, and it's us against them. And I remember in my old church, uh, we the young people, we, we were... We were not good. We uh, in the AGM, right? The church uh, meeting. You know, we would all sit down one end, and we gather and try to, you know, do and, and promote our thing to get our thing. And it's sort of us versus them. Uh, typical young people that we were. It's easy, as groups, as individuals, to have disharmony. But we are called to the same place, the same inheritance. One day in heaven, we'll all be God's people united. And so we're going to get used to living with each other. We're going to be together then. And so it means forgiving each other now. It means actually speaking to one another and sorting those things out. Now, it talks about being forbearing with one another in love. That is, you know, there's some things that people do against you. You know, they sort of tread on your toe accidentally, you know, metaphorically, they tread on your toe. How are you going to say, look, you know, that really doesn't matter? If it doesn't matter, then okay, you can forget it. You don't have to tell people everything that they've, you know, said and done against you. But if it really doesn't matter, then you should forget it. No, don't harbour it. Don't let it sort of fester as a little, a little uh, wound that will grow up into some big thing and blow up later. You've got to forget it. Forget it. If it's something that really is gnawing at you and nagging at you, then talk to the person about it. Uh, be willing to hear what they say and to put yourself in their shoes. That is how we seek to maintain the unity that we have. It is very, very important for Jesus has died to bring us together as one. If Jesus is willing to do that, then we ought to be willing to sort things out with our brother, with our sister. Verse 7 then, onwards to verse 16 then spells out how is it that we have come together in unity, how is it that we are those people who are heading to this inheritance, heading to this great future, this great hope? What has God done to get us to be where we are and how is he going to help us to stay in love with one another, stay in unity to get there to the final end? And it is God's grand plan that is revealed here in verse 7 to 16. Now, the little way I'm going to explain this is going to be, I think, very different to uh, what most people uh, read in commentaries. And uh, this is going to be something new. So I'm just warning you, right, it could be complete heresy. Uh, whenever you hear something completely new and no one else is really saying, then, you know, ding, 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 maybe it's a heretic. But I'll, I'll present it to you and see what you think. Verse 7. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of God's, of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, 
When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now that is a quote from Psalm 68. Everyone agrees with that. Psalm 68 is a picture of, of a, a king who's won a battle, you know, like Aragon, you know, having won Middle Earth, and he comes home, and in this, his victory parade, he has all his enemies trailing behind him, right, all in, in the stocks, and, and he gathers all the riches that he's gathered from uh, and, and taken from the enemies. And as he comes to his home city, he throws out all the gifts, right, giving to all his people all the loot. And so these gifts that the Christ, that the King, that Messiah is giving out is a picture of his victory. Verse 8, he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, he gave gifts to men. And so it's saying that to all of us, to every one of us, Jesus has given these gifts. Now, Verse 9 is then in brackets in my Bible. Is it in in brackets in your Bible? I give you permission to scratch out the brackets. But you've got to make sure I'm not a heretic before you mark the Bible, right? (laughs) What happens when people put things in brackets? It means it's a little bit of a footnote, right? doesn't really matter, not the main point. But I think it actually is the main point. For what Paul is doing is he's just quoted the Old Testament and now he's saying here's how this Old Testament passage has been fulfilled. So verse 9, in saying he ascended, right, quoting Psalm 68, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. That is, who is it? that fulfills Psalm 68. Who is it that has come as the king and won the victory? Who is it that has ascended? Well, he's saying it's the person who's come down first. That is Jesus, as he came to earth as a man. And maybe even as he died and in some sense gone to the deeper ground in the earth, but he didn't remain dead there. He ascended, not only in the resurrection, But remember, he was raised to the right hand of God. He's now in power. And so do you remember chapter 1, verse 10? God is putting everything together under one head, under Jesus. He's the king. He's the Lord. In other words, Jesus, in his victory, has given gifts to men. Very important. So, so far, we've got the Old Testament, we've got Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament, his death and resurrection and ascension, And then what does Jesus do? Verse 11, And he gave, and then he are the gifts, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the the shepherds and teachers, the pastors and teachers. That is, the gifts he's giving up, giving to all us as Christians, are these people gifts. Uh, It's not so much gifts in terms of gift of music or gift of preaching or gift of administration as you find in in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. They're not individual gifts that individual people have, but these are gifts of people that God has given to his church. Important people, apostles and the prophets, right? Those who are in the foundation of the church. Evangelists like, like Timothy. Uh, pastors and teachers, like many of the elders that Paul saw in Ephesus. I remember in Acts chapter 20 when he had to say goodbye to them and he appoints elders. In other words, here's Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament. He's died, he's risen, and he's given these people. And what do these people do? Well, you look through that list and they're all people who preach the gospel, aren't they? 
They're all people of the word. They're all gifts of the word. And so what do they do? Verse 12, they equip the saints for the work of ministry. Remember who the saints are. They're not people in Roman Catholic churches, glass windows. The saints, however, are not every Christian either, remember? The saints are the first century Jewish Christians. And so what we have now is Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament, died, risen, ascended, giving all these people gifts of the apostles, and they teach the first century Jewish Christians. That's in line with what we see in the Gospel and in the book of Acts. The first Christians were all Jewish. On the day of Pentecost, they were all Jewish. Even um, the people coming from all the different lands back to Jerusalem and they hear their own language there, they're speaking in tongues, etc. They're all Jewish people who who are coming back to Jerusalem to, to worship Yahweh. The first Christians were Jewish. And it is those people who got converted in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, who then go back to all their different countries. You know, they were the Egyptian-born Jews, the EBJs, you know, like the ABCs, the Australian-born Chinese. They were the EBJs. They came back, and, and now they go back everywhere, and they tell this message of Jesus to all the different nations. In Acts chapter 8, remember, Paul, in his persecution of his church, uh, makes the people in Jerusalem, everybody except the apostles, they all scatter everywhere, and that takes the gospel everywhere. That is, friends, God used the first century Jewish Christians as the bridge, as the people who then tell the gospel to the Gentile people. And what do they do? They do this work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. They build up God's church as more people become Christians, as the Gentiles now come in, chapter 2, right, Jew and Gentile coming into the body of Christ on the same basis until, verse 13, we attain to the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, to that mature humanity, the mature manhood, the new man that's mature, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That is, what is happening here in these verses is talking about God's grand plan in building the body of Christ from the Old Testament to Jesus to the apostles to the first century Jews, and then now everybody gets involved in this building of the body of Christ. And so you see in verse 13, uh, we all attain to this unity of the faith. In verse 16, everybody's involved, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped, each part working properly. Like, you know, when you know about the body, you you think, you know, all the ligaments has to work together, all the muscles, all the veins, all the blood flow. Your body is, is one unit. We as God's people are body, and we build each other together to grow to be more and more like Jesus as we build, verse 16, up one another in love to maturity. We are all involved. And now, at this point, everybody's involved. Jew, Gentile, everybody. Notice how we build each other in love in verse 14 and 15, is that we've got to be very careful about lies. We're not to be children, verse 14. 
tossed around by the waves, you know, as you see some boat out there on, on the Singapore harbour, you know, some sailing boat, little sailing boat in a big wind that just get tossed everywhere. We are not to be like that as Christians. You know, we don't sort of download the latest talk we hear from America. So, oh, yeah, that's a new idea. I'll believe that. Right? You don't go jumping everywhere. You have a certain, you stick to the Bible. You stick to the truth. And so verse 15, instead of being following deceitful schemes, following lies, we speak the truth in love. And so we're to grow in every way into Christ. Truth is important in this whole thing. Love is important. The two go together. A lot of times people play those two things off each other. Let's be loving and don't worry about the truth. You know, we don't want to disagree with people. If I tell them that they're wrong, then it doesn't sound very nice, it doesn't sound very loving. But friends, for people to believe the lie, and you let them believe the lie, that can never be good for them. That actually is not loving for them or to them. And so we build up the body of Christ as we speak the gospel truth to one another. That truth that the apostles passed down, that the first century saints passed down, so we now speak to one another. It's God who's at work in Christ. And so you see in verse 15 and 16, as we grow up to to Jesus, who is the authority, the head, verse 16, it's from the head, from him, that we grow, that we, Jesus is the one who's the source who enables us to grow. In other words, friends, what I think we have here is the Pauline Great Commission. You know about the Great Commission, right? Matthew chapter 28. Uh, go into all the world and uh, make disciples of all nations. He's Paul's great commission for us. He shows how it's all unfolded. The key is Jesus, and now we are all involved in building the church. Yeah, friends, building the church is not just helping Christians to grow to be more mature. That's an important part of it. It's actually helping not individual Christians to grow, but all of us to grow together to be more loving. That's slightly different. That is, uh, say in your Bible study group and you're a Bible study group leader, your aim is not just that each individual Christian in your Bible study group get to be more like Jesus. Your aim is that the whole group actually grows in the course of the year or two or whatever, that as a group they are more loving to one another. Right? It's actually a, a group of people, a church, a little church that you're trying to grow. But then it's more than just even a group of Christians growing. You build up the body of Christ, the church, by bringing in more people who are not yet Christians. Yeah, you build the building by putting more bricks into the building. That is, building the body of Christ involves evangelism. This is the great commission of Paul for all of us as Christians. This is what we are called to. In Australia, of the people who go to church, 80% of them became a Christian when they were in high school or younger. I don't know what it is in, in Singapore, but it would surprise me that 
it wouldn't be something actually quite quite similar. Right? It's it's a high school. It's the girls' brigade, boys' brigade. It's it's when people are young that that's often when they become Christians. When people are old, then you know they're so set in their ways, and it's just so hard, isn't it? I mean, there is the other twenty percent where they also become Christians. Uh, so I'm looking at you know the, the, our young people down the front here. You are the ones who can talk to your friends at school, right, on the playground or whatever. Um, my, my girls, when they went through a, a high school, uh, there was three of them who were Christians in a, in a class of 80, and that was a Christian school. Uh, God was so kind to them that as a result of them and their telling their friends about the gospel, uh, over the course of the six years of high school, about ten of their friends became Christians. I was very happy because they never came to and said to me, oh, I'm not sure if I believe in this Jesus stuff. Are you sure Jesus came back from the dead? I didn't have to do that because all their non-Christian friends did that. And then they had to defend the gospel to the non-Christian friends. So they worked out all those things, how it's true, and they were the ones promoting it. Evangelism can start when you're very, very young. Tell your friends, ask them to come along to things. If the young kids can do it, we as adults can do it as well. There's a thing called friendship evangelism, which I'm not sure I believe in. Because people load the word friend with a lot of friendshipness. So they spend a long time building this bridge to be a friend of someone. And they think, oh, we've got to be really good friends and really close before I can tell them the gospel. The trouble is, when you spend a year or so building the relationship to be a friend of someone, then guess what? You don't want to risk the friendship by telling them the gospel. What if I tell them the gospel and they don't like it? So you spend all this time building this massive, great bridge called friendship, and you don't want to cross the bridge. I'm glad you have friends, right? You've got to tell your non-Christian friends the gospel. But I think what we need is more, not so much friendship evangelism, but acquaintance evangelism, contact evangelism. That is, yes, set up relationship with people, but you don't have to be the best, best of friends before you tell them the gospel. Someone you see regularly, you know, just a little bit, you know, the other mother in, in, the, in the school or, you know, you can, as you set up some relationship, actually start telling them about the gospel. It is less risky because, well, if they don't like me, well, that's all right. But also it is more loving because you are willing to tell them the gospel even though you're not really good friends as yet. You don't have to be good friends before you love people. But it always takes risk when you let people be knowing that you are a Christian. And when you go for a job interview, let them know early that you are Christian. How? Put it on your CV that you are Christian. One of my friends put it on his CV that he's Christian. And in the interview, the interviewer said across the table, will you work on a Sunday? My friend thought about it. And then he said, no, I don't want to work on a Sunday because that's, that's, I want to save that for church. He thought, I failed this interview, right? Might as well pack up my things and go to the next one. But then the interviewer said, guess what? 
I'm a Christian as well. I was just testing you. (laughs) And he got the job. Now, that doesn't always happen. But when it doesn't happen, praise God, right, that you didn't get that job and have to be enslaved to them, you know, 24-7. Let people know you're Christian and they'll actually start looking at you. They're actually seeing how you live. Are you like one of those Christians that rip off people with money? Are you someone who's faithful? And they look at you and and that actually gives you a chance to show your integrity, show your honesty. And when they know that you're a person who's faithful and honest and you're a good worker, they know it's because you're a Christian. They don't think, oh, it's because he's a nice guy. They don't think, oh, it's because he's a good Buddhist. They know you are a Christian. And when you do something really strange, like be willing to take a demotion in order to spend more time with your family, or really strange in terms of doing what's right and honest, even though it may cause other people around you to, you know, be caught in something, then they know why you're doing it. Evangelism. Friends, that is what chapter 4, 1 to 16 is about. We are called to that. Very quickly now, the rest of chapter 4 and the rest of chapter 5. It's going to be very quick. I used to think chapter 4 verse 17 is a new section. Until I had to preach these two chapters, uh, two bits of this chapter, all the way to chapter 5 and verse uh, 21 in one talk. And then I realized, hey, it's actually not two sections or three sections, it's actually all one section. Because in verse 17 there's the word therefore as well. Uh, now, for some reason, the English Standard Version doesn't have the word there. I don't know why. The reason why I got this version is that it actually has all the words there, but it doesn't. The uh, NIV is actually better, and it actually has the word at least then, right? Uh, but verse 17, should we? chapter 4, 17, Now, therefore, this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. That is, verse 17 onwards is how we are to be those who build up the body of Christ. How is it that we're going to live out this great commission? How is it that we're going to tell the truth and live the truth? How is it that we're going to love other people in the truth? And it's all about how we walk. The idea of walking started back in chapter 4, verse 1. I urge you, therefore, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that which you have been called. You've been called to this great hope. Jesus has done all this to get you to this great hope, and here's how you keep going to build the body of Christ to get to this future certainty. And now there's, this is how you walk, he, he says. Chapter 4, verse 17, we are to no longer walk as the Gentiles do. In chapter 5 and verse 1, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. In chapter 5 and verse 8, At one time you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Chapter 5 verse 15, 515, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Walk, 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 walk. It's all about how we walk. Walking, friends, it's a symbol of how we live. It's a great symbol. For we walk one step at a time, one day at a time. 
We walk towards a certain direction. That's where we're going. We walk in a certain way. You know, you look at um, how some fathers walk and you look at their children and they walk in exactly the same way. Right? Somehow there's this imitation, this family likeness. We are to walk and live in a way that is different. And so very quickly, we are to be different, no longer walk as the Gentiles do. That is different from how everybody else walks. Different from how we used to walk when we were not Christians. Friends, that already strikes at a point that, that, that we don't like. It means we're going to stand out as different. It means we're not going to be part of the popular. It means we may be unpopular. It means that people may not even like us, may even hate us for being different. But we are to be different. In what way? You know, do I dye my hair blue? Is that how I'm going to be different? No. How are we to be different? Verse 18, well, the rest of the world, they're darkened in their understanding. They have a hardness of heart. They're callous in verse 19. They live for sensuality. They are greedy. But that's not the way you learn Christ in verse 20. You are very different. You've put off that old way. And now you've been recreated. Look at the idea of creation in verse 24 that we talked about earlier this morning. You've put on, you're to put on the new self that is created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. We are to be different from our world, to be holy. We're different, we create different. More and more in our modern society, we're going to be standing out as different on the issue of homosexuality. Right? It's uh, hitting home in Australia as well. Uh, I think in the next few years, we're going to pass a law that says you can have homosexual marriage. We've been fighting, fighting, fighting against it. Our last Prime Minister, he was Roman Catholic, and so at least he fought against it in his own way. They didn't like him, so in Australia you don't even have to have elections. Just get rid of him. And you put in the next guy uh, who's in the same party, but someone else that everybody likes better, and now this new guy uh, is not going to really uh, stop it. It's going to happen in the next few years. We, we write letters you know, as the Christians. We try to do what we can, but it's going to come. Islands, such a Roman Catholic country, suddenly accepted it overnight. It's amazing. America has accepted for a long time. England, Singapore, well, you're going to be standing out as different very soon by saying that homosexuality is actually sinful. Uh, We want to love sinners, we will love the homosexuals, we'll care for them, but we are not going to condone their way of living. And marriage is, is not one man plus one man or one woman plus one woman. right? That's not how God created the thing called marriage. We're going to stand out as different. We're going to be seen as those people who are arrogant, who are bigoted, who are old-fashioned, who are stuck with some, you know, Bible, who are Old Testament, just, you know, Leviticus, and, you know, you, you, you guys, you'll stone people for adultery, you'll stone people for homosexuality, you, you. We're going to be known as people who are the unloving people. 
But we're going to stand up for the truth and love people. For the truth is actually the best thing for people. Uh, the homosexual lifestyle is terrible. Uh, they cover it up. There's a big um, political agenda that is being pushed forward by the homosexual uh, lobby to say it's, it's, a, it's a happy life. They're very clever. They call it gay, right? And gay means happy, right? It's a great uh, stealing of a word, but you look at their life and it's not happy. By all kinds of um, markers, even non-Christians have worked out that there's more, every marker, you know, health, drugs, suicide, everything. It's not a good way to live. We stand up for the truth and will be seen as different, as weird. But we're going to stand up for righteousness and holiness. Now, that's not the only way, but it's one of the ways that's going to come to our society. We're going to be people who then in our holiness live out life in the church in a way that is different. How different? Well, verse 25 to 32 of chapter 4 speaks about how it's different. I'd always thought we apply this individually. But when you look through it, there's not much that's actually individual about it. It's all about how people relate to one another, how, how even church people relate to one another. So verse 25, put away falsehood, they're the lies of the devil. Let each one speak the truth, notice, with his neighbour. What neighbour is he talking about? Well, it's the Christian neighbour, for we're members of one another. We're members of the body of Christ. We've got to speak the gospel, teach the Bible to one another. Verse 26, be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. It's a strange verse, isn't it? There's some anger that's actually not wrong. right? Um, some anger that that's right to be anger, angry, you know? It's, there's righteous anger, there's God's anger. But it's so easy for us as sinful people to turn even righteous anger into ungodly anger. And so one of the ways to safeguard against that is to make sure we sort it out with people. You know, you see a Christian brother or sister who is doing something that's wrong and, and it makes you angry because it's wrong, well, sort it out with them. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Sort it out quickly. You see, it's about relationships, isn't it? Verse 27, give no opportunity for the devil. Verse 28, don't steal, but work. Do honest work. And in this honest work, what do you do? You then have something to share with others. Instead of taking from others what is not yours, you work hard so you can give and share in generosity. It's about relationships. Here it includes those outside. Verse 29, no corrupting talk coming out of our mouth but speak only what is fitting for the occasion, giving grace to those who hear. Verse 31, bitterness, wrath, uh, sinful anger, clamour, slander, that, that should all be put away from us as long as well as malice. Verse 32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Friends, if we live like this, our church would grow in unity, wouldn't it? It will. If you are like this, your flatmates would like you to continue to be flatmates. 
If you live like this, even your brother and sister may actually like you to live in the same house. If you live like this, maybe your husband and wife wouldn't mind you living in the same room either. Right? These are all things that build for unity and relationship. Then he talks about genuine love very quickly. Chapter 5, verse 1 to 6. Uh, imitate God. He loved us. We are his beloved children. So verse 2, walk in love. But there is twisted love. Verse 3, sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness. That's all twisted love. Sexual morality, that is something that would affect our church, wouldn't it? If there was adultery within a church, let me tell you, when it comes out, it would affect the church. We are to be those who are pure in our relationship to one another. You don't have to speak of adultery, but even you know people dating one another. We've got to work at drawing the boundaries, making sure we're not putting ourselves in situations where we are tempted to sort of go too far. Pornography, what we see on the internet. We are to be people who help each other to struggle against that. Those things ought not be mentioned and ought not be not mentioned because we try and hide it, but not, not be mentioned amongst us because it doesn't exist amongst us. We've got to work in getting rid of those things. Now, all that makes people feel guilty, guilty as it should, because it's, 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 it's sexual immorality. But the thing that doesn't make us feel too guilty, but it's listed there nonetheless, is the love of money. You see there in verse 3, covetousness. Down in verse 5, covetousness is defined as idolatry. It's the love of things. The love of things. It's that flirting with things, uh, flirting with the world, uh, wanting to, to desire something, of wanting things. Nothing wrong with having things, but that love of things. Nothing wrong with money, but that love of money is what covetousness is. A few years ago, I uh, found an uh, article in the Straight Times uh, which was about covetousness, although he doesn't call it that. A guy uh, called Andrew Duffy wrote an article about uh, what happens when there's a sale on. He imagines a scene where you go into a sale and you see the thing you always wanted, called the object of desire. And he's a dialogue, object of desire, speaking. And he calls out across the crowded sales floor, over here, over here, I'm over here. You, the shopper, crossing the crowded sales floor, unable to believe that your, your, your object of desire is there. You think of the Prada handbag, your great you know, Sony TV, or whatever you always wanted, right? And you say, I didn't think you'd be on sale. Object of desire. I knew you would come. Now that we've found each other, we must never be departed. <laughs> shopper, oh, you are lovely, but I, I, I really don't need you. Object of desire. That is why you desire me so much. Shopper, is that so? 
object of desire. Yes, so take me to the cashier and I'll be yours forever. Shopper, no, no, leave me alone. I was fine before I met you. Object of desire. But now that you have found me, you know that your life will be incomplete without me. If you don't buy me today, you'll regret it for the rest of your life. Shopper, no, no, I can walk away. I can walk away from you. Object of desire. If you walk away now, someone else may buy me. You'll miss your chance. Today I'm a bargain. Shopper, ah, you're a bargain I cannot afford today. Object of desire. Suddenly calling to other passerbys. Over here, over here, I'm over here. Shopper, shh. Someone may hear you. Object of desire. You see, you do care for me. I am your destiny. Don't fight it. We're meant to be together. And now I am here at 40% off. You cannot resist me. Now let's go to the cashier, shall we? See, what is, what is this, this covetousness? It is the great Singapore sale. <laughs> Nothing of going to the shops. But it's that desire of always wanting the latest, always wanting more, always not quite happy with what you got. It's wanting that feeling of carrying home those shopping bags or buying that thing on eBay. eBay is really good. You get the satisfaction of buying it, and then you get the extra satisfaction when they ring, you, ring on the doorbell or put it in the post, and you get it a second time. Oh, wow. It's that covetousness, that love of things, rather than the love of people and of God. We are to be those who spend more time and effort and energy caring about God and his people and the church than about getting the latest whatever gadget. Genuine love. Then in chapter 5, verse 7, 14, we're going to really go fast now, is we are to be different from the people around us. They are in darkness, but don't be partners with them. You were one time, verse 8, chapter 5, verse 8, in darkness as well, but now you are light in the walk. Walk as children of light. How do you walk as children of light? Well, the next few verses, you do not, verse 11, take part in the unfruitful works of darkness. Instead, expose them. For it's shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead. Awake, O sleeper, is a great verse in the middle of the talk. Awake, O sleeper, you know. <laughs> Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. That is, we are to be different, and sometimes that will show that others are sinful by our righteousness. I had a friend now who was doing engineering, and they were meant to build this mechanical, this bridge with, um, with sticks, you know, matchsticks and paddle pop sticks and things like that. And they were meant to use just normal glue. But one of the people in the group project said, look, this thing is not going to work. It's too heavy unless we use super glue. And so their group decided to use super glue. And what happened? Well, the one Christian in the group said, no, no, we're not going to use superglue. It's against the rules. The whole group is jeopardized. The whole group is shown to be cheating. What do you do? 
You got to stand up for what is right. I got a friend who's working in a in a company and found out that books were dodgy. Showed it to the manager. Manager says, "Shh, don't worry about it." He says, "No, no, I can't. I can't. It's dodgy." And then the next weekend, suddenly she found that she had lost her job for some unknown reason. It's got a cost. But in the midst of this, sometimes as you as you stand out as the light. So other people become light. And I think what it's saying here is sometimes when we stand out as different, it will cause people to actually realize that you are different, that you are Christian, and may even help them to become Christian. That's part of evangelism. You see, evangelism is not only speaking, it's mainly speaking, but it involves how we live, for we've got to walk the talk. But walking the talk sometimes will cause us to be very different, but that's good. At least then they know what being a Christian is about. We've got to be willing to be different if we are actually going to be those who can teach the gospel to others. Evangelism. That's what it involves. This is how we build up the body of Christ. Then finally, in chapter 5 and verse... Seven, 18 onwards, 18 onwards, we are to be those who walk in wisdom. Uh, pick it up from uh, verse 17. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with water, with, with wine, with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to walk, verse 15, in a way that is wise. How do we do that? Well, you live out, verse 16, in a way that is making the most, the best use of the time. And how do we do that? How do we walk in a way that's wise, verse 17, by not being foolish? And how we not be foolish? But by doing what the will of God is. And what is the will of God, verse 18? To be filled with the Spirit. He's uh, one of the, I think it's the only time in Paul's letters where we are commanded to be filled with the Spirit. Lots of churches around will say all kinds of things about what being filled with the Spirit is. It's often about speaking in tongues or doing miracles or all those kinds of things, uh, casting out demons and things like that. But here, to be filled with the Spirit is nothing got to do with any of those kind of things. But to be filled with the Spirit means we are influenced by the Holy Spirit. Not influenced by wine, not drunk with wine. Right? Those who are intoxicated with wine are controlled by alcohol. No, you are to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. And what does it look like? Verse 19, how you talk to one another. It looks like it's again about church, isn't it? How you talk to one another. But notice this addressing of one another is in terms of our singing. Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making a melody to the Lord. I love that verse. Making a melody to the Lord with your heart. I love that verse because I can't sing. But it's with the heart. That's what Jesus cares about. We sing to one another by speaking and singing spiritual songs. It's part of teaching one another. 
It's praising God, but it's also teaching one another. And therefore, the words that we sing are very, very important. That's what it means to be those who are under the control of the Spirit. Those who are under the control of alcohol, what do they do? You walk past a pub or you know, a bar, if they're really under the control of the spirits, right, the alcohol spirits, then they're singing as well, right? But they're singing all kinds of funny things, right? And they don't know what they're singing and then there's a fight outside and... We are not to be like that. We are to be different from that. Especially, verse 20, by giving thanks always for everything. Always, everything. That's hard, isn't it? When things don't go right, keep thanking God. We are to be those who are content with life. And it shapes us as a community, as each one of us is like that. Well, friends, let's conclude. Point five. I promised that in this hour you will know what it is that you are called to. Well, now you know it. What is your calling in life? Friends, it's not about being called to a particular professional vocation. Not here, not in the rest of the New Testament does it talk about we being called to a particular job. We are called to be Christian, we are called to heaven, we are called to um, be godly, we are called to even suffer, but you are not called to be an engineer. You are not called to be a accountant. It's, it's funny, isn't it? Uh, whenever we as Christians talk about what you're being called to in some work, it's always some kind of middle-class professional work. Have you ever heard anyone say, I think God is calling me to be a, a bank clerk. I think God's calling me to work at A&W or McDonald's or something like that. <laughs> right? God is always calling people to middle-class kind of professional jobs, isn't it? We have a very middle-class Holy Spirit. <laughs> that should alert us to the fact that it's really our desires that we're trying to disclose with a bit of Christian jargon. Work is work. Careerism is not what the Bible calls us to. What the Bible wants us to do is do a faithful day's work. And basically any work, except for being a thief here, or maybe a murderer, a hitman for the triads, or a prostitute, or you know, except for the sinful work, all work is good, all work will serve society. I know a man who um, worked in Singapore as a a surgeon, a plastic surgeon. And he tells me, I got into this in order to help people, you know, people with burns to actually help them and things like that. But what I end up doing 99% of the time is helping middle-aged ladies from, I won't mention the country, uh, come to Sydney, come to uh, Singapore to get rid of their extra weight and to fix up their face so that their husbands will keep loving them. I guess that's loving, isn't it? So these husbands keep loving them. But um, it's all about beauty. It's all about, you know, friends, the garbage collector does more for the health of Singapore than the plastic surgeon. 
God does not call us to particular careers. Nor does he call us into full-time ministry. Oh, that's all. That's a bit, oh. And he's the pastor saying that. Old Testament, yes, God calls Moses, God calls, you know, Samuel, you know, Samuel, Samuel, God. But in the New Testament, oh yeah, the Apostle Paul, he's called to be an apostle, you know, there's the Macedonian call, come over here. But he's a special case, you know, he's a special, you know, he's the apostle. But there's no expectation that we as Christians ought to wait for a call from God before we go into full-time ministry. Yes, the New Testament talks about having an inner desire to do it. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, yes, it talks about, um, you know, we've got to be in partnership with people. And I get the idea that people want, want, want us to be sure that we are meant to be in ministry, so when the going gets tough, we'll, we'll stay in it. Um, but I don't think it comes out of a, an experience of a calling. A friend of mine said, um, you know, he, he's going into ministry because he was walking down the road in Hong Kong and he saw a bottle on the street that was half empty. And that was God's call to him to go into ministry because it spoke to him of the emptiness of the world <laughs> and how the world is broken. And Now, he's very genuine in that, right? But friends, I don't need to see a bottle to know that our world is empty and broken. I'm just going to read the Jolly Bible. I know, don't I? Right? Our core, if you're going to have a core into ministry, a core comes from, from the gospel message itself. I don't need to sleep around in terms of on my bed waiting for Joshua, Joshua, Joshua until I, I go into ministry. I heard of a story of someone uh, sitting on the bus stop in Singapore and praying for an hour, so God, should I do ministry? Should I do ministry? I don't know. Tell me, tell me. God, and in, in the desperation at the end, he says, God, just show me a sign. Amen. He opened his eyes, and then this bus pulled up with a big Nike sign. Just do it. <laughs> right? Uh, are you going to wait for that before? <laughs> Friends, Ephesians chapter 4 we have all been called to build up the body of Christ. Every one of us as Christians have been called to this. That is what God is working from all eternity to do. Now, whether you do it full-time or part-time, that's just a use of how, how of time, that's just sorting out your gifts, your, your character, you know. But we should all be seeking to do whatever we can to build up the body of Christ. There is the call for us to participate, all of us, in God's grand plan. They'll affect our priorities. They'll affect maybe even what we do, what we choose to study. Or some of us may know that, yes, indeed, we have the gifts of teaching people the Bible. What is stopping us? from actually heading towards that. Nothing should stop us from seeing how we can build up the body of Christ. Yes, we've got to make a living. Someone's got to make the money, and so you might have to get a job, but that's not what life is about. That's not where your passion is, is in your job. Your passion 
is in teaching the Sunday school on Sunday. Your passion is in leading the Bible study group on Wednesday. Your passion is, is seeing how you can help the church to set up everything so people can meet together and, and hear God's word and build up one another. That's your passion in life. It's like the, um, the Olympians, Olympians back in the old days, right? In the old days, there's no professional Olympians. Now, you want to go into Olympics? Well, you get your day job, right? You uh, work in the supermarket or something. But that's not what life is about. Life is about, you know, early hours in the morning when you're out there rowing and, and you know, trying to be an Olympic rower. Our job is just our job to keep us alive. What we're living for is the kingdom of God. What we're living for is to build up the body of Christ however we can. Friends, that is God's call to us, each one of us. Does your life and my life reflect that we are hearing God's call? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have called us in the gospel to build up your body, the church. We thank you for you have done so much in our history. From eternity, you have chosen us in Christ. From the Old Testament, you've made promises about the king who would come and win the victory and give the gifts. And in Jesus, you have sent that king to come down and then to rise as the king of the whole universe and we thank you that he has given us, the church, the apostles and prophets and the scriptures they wrote, the pastors, the evangelists who taught in the first century. And we thank you for those Jewish Christians who risked their lives, who told the gospel even to us who are Gentiles. And we thank you that your church gets built up day by day, year by year, century by century, as all your people seek to live in holiness, to be different, to speak the truth of the gospel in love. And we thank you that we can be in this generation at this time, in this church, that we can promote the building up of your people. Please, Father, help us to know that that is your calling for us in this life. That we might live in a way that is worthy of that calling. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.